The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. This weekend is a women's retreat. It's been mentioned already, and so we'll be following our usual habit of suspending the current preaching series that we're involved in. I do that for two reasons. First, so that those who are away won't feel left out by missing something or another in the series. And second, and I usually try to preach something here in the church that is at least partially related to whatever's being discussed at the retreat, so that there's some connection between the two groups. So this morning, we're not going to be looking at Colossians like we have been, but we will be looking at Ephesians, which is sort of the sister book to Colossians. So there will be some things that are similar, be some, some relationship between the two books and overlap. But the message that we're going to look at in Ephesians is going to be helpful to us because it explicitly mentions the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is the subject of the women's retreat, what they're talking about this weekend. So my hope then is that this will be helpful in a few ways, and it will be helpful for us here now this morning in particular in addressing this question that I've I've kind of picked, had in my mind here. This is an unusual way to approach things. I usually just take the next passage, but I've actually approached it through asking a question this morning and then looking for a passage that answers the question. It's unusual for us, but here's my question. I'm wondering, how can I live with a more God-honoring, wise joy? How can I live, how can you live, how can we live with a more God-honoring, wise joy. It'd be helpful to know that because that is, in fact, God-honoring. It's what honors God when his people live, walk in wisdom and in joy. When we have lives that are characterized by godly wisdoms, we'll talk about it a little bit, and godly joy, that actually honors God because God can say, look at my people, look what I've made them to be, I've given that to them, that's for me honors him. And of course, that would be delightful for us. We'd, we'd want to live lives like that. We'd want to walk in that. I didn't mean to say this, but, but I, last night, uh, shortly before I came here, I stayed home to watch the beginning of the Virginia Tech-Notre Dame game. And I did so because I'd heard a little bit about what the beginning of a game of Virginia Tech is like. Anybody ever seen this or been there? I know some folks have been there. Lane Stadium erupts as the team comes in. The whole stadium jumps. I don't know how it doesn't fall down over the years, but it's, it's just bouncing. The whole place is bouncing as uh, music is played, as the team comes in, and fireworks and smoke and whatnot, and it's it's supposedly, I guess, one of the most raucous openings to a game in, in all of college football, so I wanted to see that. And it was remarkable, and then Notre Dame killed him. But, um, <laughs> but the beginning was remarkable. And, you know, the cameras are showing all the people in the crowd having an an amazing moment or moments there with one another as they welcome in their team and as, as they are excited. 
over a football game. I love college football, but it's a football game. And later that night, as they, I mean, they, you know, they played with them for a half, then they got beat, and later that night they were probably all sad because it was just a football game, and it, it's over, and we lost, and now moving on to the next day, we've got class. It's just a football game. But what we have here is a lot more than a football game. And if what we, we sang in that last song, if the Spirit of God would move on us and, and show us something of we, what we have here, to, I, I understand that you've got unique things going on there in a football stadium and you've got smoke and fireworks, and, but something of that kind of excitement. Something about that environment says that when, when we sit here and, and are, uh, I guess this is good, that there's something's disconnected there. And we, we should recognize that and say, I, we're not, this isn't going to be like Lane Stadium. But in some way, sort of, kind of, it should be. And should be more than. Maybe not the shouting, maybe not the jumping, maybe not the smoke, but the delight and the joy, the thrill. The book of Hebrews talks about how we do not come to Mount Sinai smoking with fire. Watch out. We come to the holy city for delight and celebration and joy. The, the contrast there in Hebrews trying to, trying to say something to us you come to a celebration. Rejoice! And I want to know, how do we live lives more characterized by God-honoring wise joy? Like that. Like that. So, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 22. It's going to say something about that. Not everything about that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I realize for myself, I'm asking that question and I'm looking at this sermon and saying, oh boy, we're a long way. This is going to be a weak offering for that goal. But maybe the Spirit of God would come on us and would light something and would, would ignite our hearts. But we've got to be clear about what we're looking for, what the goal is. The goal is not austere, proper living. It's joy in God. It's the goal for us and for God because that's what honors him when his people say, I have joy because of you. I have joy in you. That's what we're after. That's what we want. And we'll pick up a little bit, maybe a little bit of help for that, that goal from Ephesians 5. So when we come to Ephesians 5 here, we're obviously dropping in the middle of the book. We don't know any of the context. So really briefly, if you were to look at Ephesians 4, beginning of 4, moving on to where we pick it up in the beginning of 5, you'd see Paul laying out, here's the Christian life for the church there in Ephesus. And he, four different times up to our passage, talks about it as a walk. And says, walk this way, and walk this way, and walk this way, and walk this way. And then we're going to look at the fifth and final walk passage which is really a summary of the whole thing. Here's the Christian life. Walk like this, he's going to say. So 
That's what we're going to see this morning. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21. And I'm going to read this and then make three observations that are not of equal length. The first and the third are pretty short, and the second one in the middle is longer. So here's the passage. And remember what we're after here. What we're after is a life of God-honoring, wise joy. It's going to tell us a little bit about how to get that, how to receive that. So, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the passage. Three observations. Here's the first. The Christian life is a walk of wisdom. The Christian life is a walk of wisdom. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. There's the fifth walk statement. You want to walk not as unwise, but as wise. We are to walk or live in wisdom. And wisdom here is is not just like intellectual ability, not just knowing the answers to questions. It's not just skill or intelligence. In the Bible, wisdom is right or, or correct living here in this life, that is in relation to God and eternity. So a life right now that takes into account the one true God, what he's done to create, what he's doing to sustain, how he's working and what he's working everything towards and where this is all going to judgment and eternity. It's going there for all of us. See, if you're you're a Christian, you you realize I'm going to, I'm going to be judged, not am I going to go to heaven or to hell, but I'm going to be judged even going to heaven for every deed done in the body, whether it be good or bad. That's what Paul says to the church, 2 Corinthians. So wise living says, here I am, and there is a God, and I know who he is, the one true God who made all this, who rules all this, who has something going on and a purpose, and there is an accounting in an eternity, and then lives accordingly. And Christians, the people of God, have always been called to steep themselves in this wisdom. So when Paul calls for it here, or he mentions it in Colossians, and we're actually going to see in chapter 5 eventually a similar command. When he calls for wisdom, he's not saying something new, but something very old. Something that really summarizes the whole of the Christian life. We are to walk in wisdom and not be foolish. You see that phrase here and other phrases. In other words, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is and make the most of these few precious moments that we have in this life. Best use of the time, because the time is short. At most, we've got a few decades or years or months or days. Who knows how long? We don't know, but there was a day that we were born, and there is a day appointed for each of us to die. And as the Bible calls us 
Note that. Lord, teach us to number our days. To grasp the brevity of life and the finality of death and the certainty of judgment. Time is short. That's, that's where we are. Wait a minute, I thought you were talking about joy. We're, yeah, we're going to get there. But the first beginning piece of that is to realize I have one precious life. Only one. And in that life, I should, we must understand the will of the Lord, he says. Some of the Lord's will, obviously, is expressly stated in the Bible, do this, don't do that. But a lot of it's not explicit. We only get, like, principles. We get, we get parameters. We get perspectives and contexts and then have to walk with God and discern that. This isn't the passage that explains how to know the will of the Lord. It just calls us to care about it understand what the will of the Lord is. It, it, it puts it in front of us in, in a command form. This is important for you to know when you're thinking about living in this one precious life. And it's issued to us in a command because very often we kind of drift. We, we, tend to, we tend to drift away from concern about what God calls us to and very easily drift into kind of what feels natural, kind of what I want, kind of what the culture presses me towards. And it's important, Paul calls us, I'm calling you to wise living, that is, attention to God and what he requires of us and what he calls us to, wisdom. It's important that you be concerned about that, and it's important that you realize that in these brief days here, not only is, is it incumbent upon you to look to the Lord, but also to be aware of the environment you live in. It's not neutral, it's hostile. The days are evil. The days are few, and the days are evil. Not just hard, not just difficult, but evil. There is a, a real enemy all around us that is attempting to, in one way or another, target us to pull us away from him and away from what is the joy of our lives. Communion with God. The wise walk with him. Do you see the danger? Sometimes we do, very easily. Sometimes you, you live a life where you bump into some sort of a temptation or some kind of a situation, and you, you would almost even say, that is evil. Ooh. And we're alert to that. But I wonder, are we equally alert to the more common subtle draws and subtle temptations? The ones that we usually give into. The temptation to complain or feel angry. The sorry for yourself. The temptation to veg out and spend hours in front of that screen. Really. Hours. Do you see the heartaches and, and the pains and the sufferings that you face in life as, yes, evidence of a broken world and, yes, affliction against you, but do you also see them as temptations rising up in your mind, moving you to call into question the goodness of God and his care for you? There, so what I'm saying is that there's an evil in the sufferings that is the sufferings themselves and in how those get used in here. 
Do you notice the evil in the great abundance that we have? Isn't that blessing? It can be. It can be. The great abundance of wealth and comfort and entertainment and, and the expectation of health and safety, it can be blessing, but it can also be used. It all, it all works in, a, in one compelling argument to us that we can make a life for ourselves apart from God. That's a great danger. There's evil in that. That's the message kind of spoken to us in this world all around. And it kind of rises out of your own heart. If you, if you notice it, don't you often, I, at least me, I often, I kind of want just the, the next thing. I, I hope for the, the, the next thing that will get me to a spot where finally I can rest and not need God. Because I'm okay. I've got enough money. I've got enough health. I've got enough security. Whew. I don't need God. There's great temptation, evil in that. It's all around us in the world. And what these first few verses are getting at is be alert to that. Watch out. Watch out. Wisdom asks, what does the Lord say about all this? What does he matter here and now? How does his reality, his requirement, his reign speak to and inform and direct Notice there aren't any answers here. There's just, there's just an urging upon us. Watch for that and care about that and seek that because there's, a, there's an environment in which you live that's hostile. And you've got one brief life here to use well. Live wisely. Walk in wisdom, not in folly. That's the Christian life. So, first first thing to ask here is how wise are you? Are you accustomed to thinking about wisdom in, in these terms? I think often we aren't. I think often we say, one common verse, if you lack wisdom, ask. And I think most of the time when we use that, we use that in the context of, I've got a problem I don't know the answer to, and so I pray and ask God, what's the answer to this question? which is not wrong to do, of course, but that's too small. Wisdom is taking into account all the stuff that I've just been talking about. If you lack wisdom, in other words, if you don't see God in his perspective and see the days and see the environment in which you live, if you lack that, ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to make you wise. How would that happen? Okay, I need, I need wisdom. I'm called to walk in wisdom. How? How do I get there? And I hope that as I put it like that, how do I get there? How does that come about? That given the context of Colossians that we've been talking about over the last number of weeks, that something maybe trips in your mind, I have some idea what the answer might be to that. How, how do I get there? How do I, how do I become that? some idea from Colossians about what the answer to that might be and what I want to say is that yes, but we're going to get it differently in Ephesians. We're going to get a different take on it and part of the reason that I went to Ephesians is for the purpose of getting a different take on that answer. A more personal take. 
He's going to talk about a person. We need to walk in wisdom. How do we get that? That takes us to the second observation. So we get still over here. We're, we're still about God honoring wise joy. How did we get there? Still got that off to the side and written in the margin here. Here's the second observation. To walk in wisdom, we must be continually spirit-filled. To walk in wisdom, we must be continually spirit-filled. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which may at first seem out of place because we're talking like big picture, like the times and the days. And then we come to something like real specific, wine and drunkenness. And it might seem that that's out of place, but upon reflection, I think this makes perfect sense in the discussion about walking in wisdom because of what drunkenness is like and what results from drunkenness. So the command is not don't drink, it's don't get drunk. Which is important to note, not just because what it says, you know, drinking is not sin itself. But it, it reveals what the, the real issue is. Let me, let me change the statement to make this a little bit more clear. So instead of drunk, I'm going to put under the influence. Do not be under the influence of wine. Or any alcohol for that matter. You are to be under some influence, but alcohol is not the one. The real issue that is here is what's influencing you? What's controlling you? What's dominating you inside? To be under the influence, the the control of wine is wrong for a reason. Do not get drunk for that is debauchery. Debauchery is an odd word. We don't, we don't use that word very much. If, you, if you're reading a different translation, you might see a word maybe a little more helpful, dissipation. You hear the word dissipate, something that just kind of dissipates and is gone. And literally, the generic meaning behind this word, whether it's debauchery or dissipation, the word behind that, the real meaning of it is about uselessness and waste. There's a phrase, a setting in which the word is used to describe how a, a host, who invite, back in those days, a host would invite guests over and then would have his servants wash their feet with water. Well, the, somebody had their servants wash the guests' feet with spiced wine, a dissipation. It's a... It's the ridiculous wastefulness, the foolish dissipation of an otherwise valuable resource, the wine. So here's the issue. Being drunk with, being under the influence of wine is wrong because it leads to the foolish dissipation of an otherwise valuable resource, your one and only life. The real problem here is the wasting of life. That's folly. That's not wisdom. That's why it fits in so cleanly here. He's talking about wisdom, and it says, don't, don't waste your life. Don't, don't be influenced by something that's just going to cause your life to go But instead, be influenced by, be under the influence of, be, be filled with something, someone, that's going to cause your life to thrive. 
be continually Spirit-filled. The command, be filled with the Spirit. A better way to put that might be filled by the Spirit, to make clear that the Spirit is the one doing the filling. This is a command here that has two sides to it. It's a command to, to you, to, to a Christian. It's a command to you. So there's something for you to do, to think about, to engage with here. But it's an odd command in that it's a passive command. We find these fairly often in the Bible, actually. If, if you were to put this in like an English context, I've said this before in other places, it's kind of like the command, be hit by a ball. That's a command to you, but obviously you're not the active hitter with the ball. So you do have to be hit by a ball, but somebody else is the active hitter with the ball. In this case, it's the Holy Spirit who is active and we are passive. So he has the dominant role, but we have a part two because it's a command to us. So figuring out the relationship here is really important because it's this being filled with the Spirit that's at the foundation of this walk in wisdom. That's the Christian life, the Christian life in which we thrive, in which God is honored, in which we walk in wisdom and in joy. So I'm asking my question, how do I walk in more God-honoring, wise joy? And what it boils down to here is be continually filled with the Spirit. So I really need to understand this. Follow me? That can be confusing. Follow all that? Got my question off the side here in the margin. How do I walk in? How do I have a life of God-honoring, wise joy? And at the bottom, the answer is going to be be continually filled with the Spirit. It's the root of wisdom and the root of joy. So what's this mean? This passive command. I need to figure it out. Well, the Spirit's role is dominant, so let's start with him. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. I don't mean like a human being. I mean a person. He's a he, not an it. Not a force or a power, a person. A personal being. If you read the Bible, you find God and you find that there's only one single God anywhere, ever, over anything. And then you find that that God is three persons. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The only God there is is one in three. Three in one. A single God God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So he's a person, which means that he is either fully in us or fully out of us, not half and half. If you're a Christian, then he is fully living in you. So we're not talking about how do I get a higher percentage of the Holy Spirit in me. You have zero or a hundred of the Holy Spirit's presence in you. We're talking really about how does the Holy Spirit come to control me more? Living in me already. How does it become the dominant influence like alcohol would be? I don't want that. It's going to leave my life to be... I want the Spirit to control me so that life thrives. 
He must control you. He must influence you. How so? What's well, right at this point that some Christians, and I, I don't mean to pick a fight here, so please understand I'm not picking a fight. I'm just trying to draw a fine point of important distinction. Some Christians, I think, miss something that hopefully we, having been in Colossians for some time now, will be less likely to miss. We've spent a lot of time there in Colossians chapter 3, and we've been talking so much there about how we are changed, how we are grown. If you've been over the last several weeks, you've heard this again and again and again. How do we become more like Christ? Set your mind on things above. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Set your mind on Christ where he is seated. May the reign of Christ and his peace fill you. May the, the gospel dwell deeply inside of you. We've seen this over and over again in Colossians. So we've got that. And if we have that, we're less likely to make what is otherwise, I think, a common mistake. Christians tend to think of, how does the Spirit control me? How does he influence me? And we think of it only in the sense of him guiding my decisions and giving me more strength, empowering me. That's just too small. It's about him affecting my own capabilities. I ask, he gives me the answer. Therefore, I know the answer. I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's just it's pretty hard, so he kind of like buffers me and gives me more mm, so I can get it done. That's how he empowers me. For example, we should be loving people. Bible says so. So, some may think one of the fruit of the Spirit is love. So, he empowers me to do love better. To love more consistently where I might waver. He gives me like a little bit more of a backbone so that I don't waver. Where I might tend to love a little less graciously, he gives me more ability to be gracious. Where I might not be very tender in my loving, he tenderizes me. Where I might be kind of judgmental, he removes judgmentalism from me. That's the Spirit's ministry. That's his influence in me so that I be a person who loves. And to that, we have to say, sort of, but not quite. See, I'm drawing a pretty fine distinction here. This is important, I think. That's too directly focused on me and my capabilities. I'm not very tender. He makes me more tender. Therefore, I love more tenderly. Sort of, but not quite. It misses something. What the Spirit does if you want to think of it more fully and more properly, what the Spirit does when he works on a Christian to influence him or her to become, in this case, say, more loving, to become more like Christ, is less about directly working on my strength or directly working on my understanding and more about introducing me to a person who then draws me on, I get, I get attracted to and I move towards and almost unwittingly become a little more like. 
This may seem confusing, but it happens all the time in human relationships. And I'm just talking about human relationships. You got somebody that you kind of admire, and almost unwittingly, you start to use that person's vocabulary, that person's slang. You start to dress like that other person. You start to act, and you start to, to react in, in ways that kind of resemble. I, I knew one time a, a person who preached with a certain kind of unique, odd posture, and I wondered where that came from until I then saw that person's pastor who preached with the same kind of odd, unique posture. I thought, that's where that came from. He used, to stand, he used to stand like this when he preached. And I thought, that's kind of odd. You're kind of like attacking the podium with your head down. And then I saw his pastor who preaches the exact same way. And I am completely sure that he did not say, young man, here's how you preach. First you put your hand in the pulpit, then you lean in like this. He didn't teach that, but he caught it somehow. Because he greatly admired, and, and this pastor was, was somebody worth admiring. He greatly admired him and just unwittingly began to copy how he was. The Spirit's ministry, that's just people. The Spirit's ministry, first, foremost, primarily, is to introduce us to a person who is supremely attractive and, and remarkably persuasive and imminently beautiful. And he introduces that person to us and we say, wow. And almost unconsciously, we are drawn after that person. Drawn by the person. That's what the Spirit does, first, foremost. In a supernatural and internal and lasting way, but which is, is transformative and it's so kind because it doesn't just like... Mm, pump me up. It makes me different. I don't stand here strengthened. I'm in a different spot. I've been moved. I am new. By relationship with, who's this person? Jesus. This is a great privilege of the gospel. We are people who are by no means wise and who by no means in ourselves were, were remotely concerned to find out what the will of the Lord was. Look out at the evil world and said, great, we love it. And far from condemning us, God sent his son who was the perfect fulfillment of wisdom, who was the one who always and only sought out what the will of the Lord was and who opposed the evil world and actually died to save it. God the Father sent God the Son to redeem me, and then God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit to move into me, take up residence in me, and make me continually new. To give me, to give you, Christian, communion with himself, not just to give you true principles. So what we find here is that in Colossians, what we have is set your mind on things above. That can sound like, I think about things. And what we have here in Ephesians is be filled with the Spirit. What that sounds like is, know the person of Jesus. They are the same. The different angles. 
This is why I wanted to preach this passage, is so that we don't get caught up in, and only think in Colossians that what my job is, is to think about things. Indeed, you can't not think about things. Yes and amen. But not only that, another way of looking at it is see the person of Jesus. Commune with him relationally. And that's what God has provided for you by putting his spirit in you. He said, I will move into you, as Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He moves in and takes up residence. This is about a relationship with the God of the universe. Him in you, you in him. And that's how the Holy Spirit changes us. He fills us with Jesus. Have you ever experienced that in a powerful way? Where God has been real to you, and I mean really real to you. Not just true, not just appropriate and right, but real. Have you ever experienced Christ as beautiful? The cross as sweet, not just doctrinally necessary, but sweet. The future coming kingdom of shalom as the real hope of the world and of your heart. Far more than the next promotion, far more than the safe birth of a child, far more than security in this world, the kingdom to come. Oh God, if you would bring that and you've promised it glory. Have you ever experienced that? That was the spirit filling you. And that continually in powerful, remarkable, extraordinary ways and in more common ways day by day by day by day. That's what God offers to you. That's what God intended for you when he saved you. And that's what you need to walk a God-honoring, wise, joyful life. The filling of the Spirit continually. That's what God means to give to his people. That's the spirit half of this. The other half is command to you. What's your job? It is a command to us, so we have something to do here. Well, the spirit will do his work unless we drive him away in proud resistance. So don't proudly resist but consciously give him access. I, I kind of think of it like this a little bit. So the, the Bible will talk about don't grieve the spirit, don't quench the spirit. Just think of it like this. Have you ever driven in the car, and I, I don't mean this to talk about like, you know, who should be in the driver's seat of the car? Should it be me or should it be God? I'm just, it's just an analogy. You're in the driver's seat. You're driving the car, and you've got a passenger in the back seat who theoretically is in the back seat, but is kind of like coming into the front seat. So you got your head, you got your, your driver's side, the passenger side, and you got the back seat head. What's going on, guys? And the head's right here. You know, you've experienced that before? That's the Holy Spirit. 
Okay? Now, again, I'm not getting into who should be in the driver's seat. Just saying, here's the Holy Spirit. And if at some point you say, sit down, like that, you're bugging me, you're pestering me, you're, you're too close, your perfume smells, whatever, sit down. The person will say, oh, okay, sit down, look out the window, still in the car, but no longer in the front seat and no longer actually engaged with you. Still in the car, but kind of not. That's also the Holy Spirit. Grieved, quenched. And what do you have to do to get that person back into the front seat, so to speak? You gotta apologize. I'm sorry. I didn't mean I, I shouldn't have insulted your perfume. I'm sorry. And you gotta start engaging with them. You gotta start talking to them again. And probably that kind of person will come right back. As soon as you say, I'm sorry, hey, Sally, what about they're going to be back, right? That kind of person. You've got to apologize. Repentance is in order. And then recommune, recommunicate. So our, our job with the filling of the Spirit is to, apologize, is to repent of going my own way. I don't need to hear from you. Frankly, something about you is kind of troubling for me. Will you please take your seat in the back, please? And he will. And just say, have at it. But you've got one life, and you live in an evil world. Have at it. See if you can find joy there by yourself. If, if you as a Christian here this morning find yourself, I think maybe I've been grieving the Spirit in my resistance to him, repent and start talking to him again. He is eager to come back into the front seat. He's in the car because God put him in the car. God, God wants to commune with you personally. So to take the analogy then out of it, how, how do you commune with him? Well, this is again where Colossians is helpful for us because Colossians gives us the things, set your mind on things above where Christ is. May the reign of Christ and his peace be the, what's ruling in your heart. I'm thinking of 3.15, 3.16. May the word of Christ, may the gospel dwell in you deeply. Those are the places where you commune with him, where you meet him. So go back to him there. Go back to the scriptures. Go back to prayer. With, in, in fellowship, that whole Colossians chapter is about with the body. Set your minds on things above and consider Christ and his gospel work and his promises to you. Be continually spirit-filled. It's the only way you can hope to walk in wisdom and in joy, which takes us to the final point, which is very brief, so we're, we're good. Thirdly, the Spirit brings sweet community joy. Look at verses 19 to 21 here in, in Ephesians. 
flowed right out of verse 18. There are several clauses here that tell us something about what this spirit-filled life looks like. And I'm not going to treat these verses with any detail at all because if you notice, they are extremely similar to some verses that we just looked at three weeks ago and have talked about several times in the last two weeks in Colossians. So if you want these verses treated in more detail, just wind back three weeks and two weeks on the, on the Colossians series. But we need to look at them very briefly here because what they picture here, I'm going to try to get, put a summary word over them and clue. The summary word is joy. There's something sweet here. What would it look like? What would it feel like to live in this kind of a community? Singing and worship and constant thankfulness, thankfulness and released submission. Those are the verses. A community of singing and worship, constant thankfulness and released submission. So, in other words, no, no tug of war, no pulling. Who gets to be in charge? Who's, no, we're just all released in submission, appropriately to whatever the rules are, but everybody's good. Imagine the sweetness of that kind of fellowship, a constant atmosphere of worship where we encourage and exhort and remind one another, singing to each other, you'll recall, and then, of course, making melody to the Lord with all your heart. That'd be sweet. And thankful about everything always, everything always. Because everything always is good? No. The days are evil. Lots of bad stuff happens. But God reigns, and God is good. And nothing comes to me that God, who is good and who loves me and means for me to walk in joy and, and to walk with him, he's got it all, and so then I can be thankful about it all. Always and everything, always. And then we are together, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ dominates our view and we walk together. That would be joy. Im imagine just your own family, your own little household like that. If there was no contention in your relationships and you were always all, all thankful about everything and you walked around singing in praise, aware of the God who is and what he's done and what he's doing for you and where this is all going to an eternity of you with him. Joy. Wise joy to the honor of God. And that comes about this passage underlines that comes about as we walk continually filled with the Spirit. Repent and commune with Him in the Scriptures and in prayer with one another and walk in God-honoring, wise joy. Let me pray. Father, please give this to us. Please alert us to where we have in, in one way or another walked away from it. Call us back. Open our eyes. Call us back. And please, Father, by your Spirit, deliver the Son clearly to each of us. 
for our joy, and for your honor. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.